Dear Brambling, it's Uncle Luke here. You got a nice warm hug today. I hope that your breakfast was delicious today. And I hope that you're doing something really good for yourself today. Today, however, I actually have a very special guest. And uh, I guess you could say he's going to be a co-host of mine for the next few episodes coming up. But today I have uh, my friend Scott Harris. Scott is a holistic life coach. He is also a personal trainer, and he's also the host of the Hero in Progress podcast, where you can actually catch Scott and I doing a uh, three-parter called How to Be a Modern Jedi, as well as our analysis of the Fisher King uh, movie that was released in 1991, starring Jeff Bridges and Robin Williams. And um, yeah, Scott and I met back when he was a customer of mine at Starbucks, And I just remember one day uh, he was sitting on this comfy couch and kind of looking a little sad. I think you may have just had a breakup. I'm not sure. Um, But I just remember uh, after my shift, I just decided, hmm, let's go talk to Scott. And uh, we talked for like, I don't know, two hours after my shift. I don't know. I think I've been just trying to support him ever since. Within the past year or so, Scott has actually extensively studied uh, a topic called the masculine archetypes. And today marks the first day of a lengthy saga of uh, Scott and I talking about the masculine archetypes. Now, in this podcast, we are going to go into a little bit more depth of what are archetypes, what are we talking about, but I should also uh, let you all know that this is going to be a, I predict, maybe like an... (laughs) an eight-week saga or something, because uh, there are four archetypes that we're going into, and uh, when we recorded these conversations back in December of 2022, I allowed for about two hours each for us to just talk about all things and everything when it comes to archetypes. So uh, because of that uh, time allowance, we had a lot of gold pop up, and um, it was really hard for me to just cut away some of these things so it could just be an hour so what I'm deciding is that each archetype is going to be about a two-parter so I am predicting that it's going to be about an eight-week saga an eight-week journey with Scott and I talking about the masculine archetypes now what are the masculine archetypes you might be asking yourself well let's just say we call them the magician the warrior the lover and the king And uh, as we keep going into these uh, podcasts uh, with Scott, um, you'll get to learn a little bit more about what we're talking about when we say those things. Now, I guess I should give you a little bit of a backstory to why Scott and I just wanted to talk about this. Well, um, Scott one day approached me and asked if uh, I'd like to be his uh, test client for his new coaching program. And I was like, yeah, of course. Oh my gosh, absolutely. And um, he took me through a, was it 10 weeks? Yeah, a 10-week journey where we met every Thursday and um, we went through some meditations, some workbooks, and I really got to discover a new part about myself through this new type of language. What was really incredible about my experience is that I was finally able to articulate myself in a way that felt safe. And um, 
yeah, once the whole thing was done, I just, uh, I felt like I couldn't let go of my Thursdays with Scott, so I, I asked him if he would be down to record some conversations about each archetype, and he was down, and, uh, yeah, anyways, um, that is what kind of inspired this whole thing. So without any further delay, I would love for us to just dive right into this conversation. This is The Magician, part one. Hello, Scott. How's it going? Hi, Luke. How are you doing? How are you doing, my brother? <laughs> I'm good. I'm doing well. Yeah, I'm just waking up. I got my cup of coffee. As I mentioned, I've got my cup of coffee, but it is my second cup, which is rare. I rarely have a second cup. Why is today a second cup kind of day? I just really wanted to have a coffee during this conversation. I just was feeling that vibe. I wanted that extra warm, fuzzy coziness. Um, plus we're talking about magician today. So I was like, well, that'll really charge up the old, uh, the thinker, <laughs> the old, the old thinking mind. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. And tell us about the cup that it's in. It's a, uh, well, I consider it a collector now because it's a Marvel mini. So yes. So because you can't see it, if you're listening to this, it's basically, it's like a little, I don't know. It's like a mini me version of the superhero, like a little cute version. This one's captain America and it's a blue mug. Yeah. And uh, he's got his little shield. And it's funny, I don't know if you noticed this, but what else I like about this is his eyes. Gotta be very careful here because I don't want to spill anything. They're like his eyes, little Pac Man's. <laughs> I love it. Aren't they? They're little Pac Man eyes, man. It's awesome. I have Thor, I have Iron Man, I have Spider Man, I have Captain Marvel. Mm. It's hard to pick a favorite. Spider Man is my favorite of the heroes. Oh, I almost forgot Hulk. I have a Hulk one. And I find that mini so Hulk is kind of cool because he just looks like this little green, angry ball of childlike energy. <laughs> that... It's like if Hulk was a little tiny kid going, yes. <laughs> <laughs> he makes that sound. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. I love it. Well, I just wanted to say thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for wanting to come on to this show and talk about this stuff with me. I really do appreciate it. But I like to start off most of my episodes with, um, you know, would you be down to tell me your story? Tell me something about you. Start wherever you like. Take as long as you'd like. Tell me about you. Yeah, that's such a, I, I want to say it's a loaded question, but it's just because so much comes to mind of, you know, who am I and what is my story? If I can kind of give a semi Coles Notes version, I think to start when I think of my story, I think of a little boy who just dreamed of growing up to be Indiana Jones or he grew up wanting to be a superhero. And I remember one of my, my things was I'd go see a movie such as Raiders of the Lost Ark, let's say, and the end credits would roll. And I had this weird thing where I'd get out of my seat. As I'm walking up the aisle, I, you could still hear the, the theme or the music playing. And it felt like in that moment, it was playing for me. And in that moment, when I leave the theater, my life's going to be better. I'm going to be the hero. 
hero. I'm gonna like, I always had that vibe and that feeling when I was a kid. It was just, it was just amazing. So I, for my story, that's where it begins, I think. And that little boy in me is, is very much alive and he's very much present. And as you already know, throughout a lot of the work that you and I have both done this year, I've really reconnected with him mm. and allowed him to have a voice, allowed him to to play a little more freely than usual, as long as my magician doesn't get in the way, which we'll get to that later. Mm. So yeah, I grew up wanting to be an actor. That's kind of where it happened. I think I was a lot more unhappy with my home life than I was willing to admit. Uh, my parents did the best job that they could, but you know, I struggled, I got bullied, and I got teased. I was shorter than all the girls, oh. which was part of it. Mm -hmm. And kids can be kind of mean, right? So I think my escapism was movies and it was these heroes growing up. And I spent a good portion of my life dreaming of being one of those those heroes. And it really wasn't until recently and with the work that I've done that I'm very happy growing into the to the hero that I am and to love myself and, and be my own hero while still admiring those awesome characters. But yeah, so acting at first was, I think, this escape for me because it was comfortable to be other people. Mm. Um, I was always very connected to my emotions. I was very connected to my feelings. So any chance to express that through acting, I just absolutely loved. And I will toot my horn a little. I was really good. I was a really good actor when I was younger. I remember I did this play. This was grade 12, my last year in high school. And I had this lovely drama teacher, Mrs. Grant. And we did uh, Moliere's French play. It's called The Miser. Okay. And the previous year I'd had a lead role, but I wanted the lead. This was the year I wanted to play the lead. And the miser is this cantankerous old man who is afraid to spend money and he's hoarding his money. And he wants to even wants to, I think he wants to marry his daughter off to somebody rich. And so I really wanted this role and I got it. And I remember just immersing myself fully. I had this knobby old man cane. It was made of wood and I carried it in the hallways at high school. Like that cane was an extension for the, the two, three months we worked on this play. I knew everybody else's lines. There's my magician coming in, right? <laughs> and I just remember this one day, I haven't shared this story in a long time, but it was magical. I already kind of had a sense for this old man and this character, but there was this one specific rehearsal where something happened. The character took over me mm. and I did the lines in the scene in a different way than I'd ever done. And it was in that moment that that character was actually born. My drama teacher was laughing so hard she was crying. Oh. And, I, and I knew I had discovered something. And it was from that moment on that I really fell in love with acting. And I really fell in love with those moments when the character actually just comes to life. You learn the lines and it's a bit repetitive at first, but it's throughout the dialogue and the rehearsals, all of a sudden something just clicks. And I'll never forget that day where this old guy was born, this old miserly guy was born. And I remember I did the play and my parents came to the show and it took, I can't remember how long, but my mother told me this after she didn't know it was me. Wow. For, for she, it took her at least a couple of scenes for her to actually register. Oh, there he is. <laughs> Cause they actually gave me a bit, even, you know, I was 18 years old, but they, they gave me a bald cap and it was a pretty for that time for theater in high school. It was a pretty convincing bald cap. And I actually had a little hook prosthetic nose put on. Oh my God amongst all the old man makeup that they did right and my body like i again i committed to that role i was 18 and then boom i was so committed to this old man this old miserly man and 
Yeah, I'll never forget that. My mom couldn't even recognize me. And then I got into Douglas College Theater Program. And it was so funny because the very first semester, sure enough, one of the plays we did was called Saturday, Sunday, Monday. And it's an Italian family. One of the... Um, the characters was this character character named uh, Antonio, and he was the grumpy, surly old Italian grandpa. And he had this line in the play, called, and he would always say, I think he says about three times, and it's it's God damn the head of a donkey. Like that was his line. <laughs> and I and I remember the auditions, and I was watching all the other actors do this thing, and none of them were doing an old man. Mm. Like they were kind of just reading the lines and sort of doing a little bit of this thing. And having had this experience as the miser, I was like, this role's mine. Mm -hmm. No, nobody's touching me on this one. Sure enough, I go in. I actually studied a character from The Godfather Part 3 for that role. And I just came up with this, this old man voice, this sort of like old Italian guy. And I, I started working on the accent. And I remember, again, just not recognized on stage by my parents and it was it was weird at that point because I thought oh man here I go I'm gonna be playing old men for the rest of my career and I'm 18 20 whatever uh but fortunately the following year we did another show called quiet in the land and I played um I played the young lead role in that one okay and that was where I had the opportunity to I don't know kind of do my my real acting chops in the sense that I felt like I, I was the hero mm. I was kind of the, I was really the tragic hero in that play he, I was an Amish boy who defies his Amish family to go fight in the war and he has this wonderful monologue where he comes home from the war and he tells his father you know I killed a man wow and it was just yeah those days as an actor I think really shaped my younger years and and provided me with an opportunity of expression and sometimes I miss that expression I've been thinking about it even recently where it was it's such a beautiful artistic way to express these different facets of yourself and I think having learned the archetypes now in a weird way as you know like doing active imagination and kind of stepping into your shadow and embodying them it is kind of acting in a way mm -hmm. uh, I wonder what my how, how how my acting would would translate now I think it would be really cool yeah um, but um, but yeah then I got to this point where you know I tried acting most of my 20s good portion of my 30s and my mom got sick with cancer mm. I mean actually before she got sick as everybody knows acting is a struggle I had an agent my Achilles heel was that for that industry I looked really young for my age mm. like really young and I don't think my agent really knew what to do with me Mm. Um, and then my next agent, who was a really good friend of mine, he had me going out for a lot of these young dad roles when I was about 30, in my early 30s, mid 30s. And I'm like, I look 23, man. My kid looks like he could be my little brother. Like, uh, this isn't going to work. If I went out for young dad now, I'd slay it. Yeah. Because now I'm 49, but I look like a young dad in his 30s or maybe late, you know, mid, mid to late 30s. So it would be perfect now. But then it was like, it's not happening, man. It's not happening. Yeah. So my mom got sick and it really kind of struck this thing in me that there was just more to life than acting. And I really felt like I, I was spending too much time working Joe jobs, trying to, you know, become the next actor the next make a career out of it and so when she got sick i decided to go back to school i went to massage school for a year spa therapy uh, i started that schooling the let me think now was it the she died in 2006 i think i started that fall actually yeah i remember that wow so only a few months after she she died i went to massage school but it was a perfect place to be I had just lost the strongest anchor of feminine energy in my life. Mm. And here I was in a massage class with like 20 other women 
Uh, but it was, and here I am doing massage. It was a very, it was a perfect place to be in a year that I needed healing. I was just surrounded by these lovely women who knew how to hold space and they knew my story and they knew what I had been through. And it was just like being in a, yeah, a room full of mothers and potential mothers. And I was grieving the loss of my mother. So that area, that time of my life was when I really discovered this connection between healing the body and just getting in touch with that sort of healing part of the body. The first time I really discovered that was before I did massage school, my mom I think she she had either just died or she was really sick. And I went to get one of my first massages ever. Like I'd never had one before. Mm-hmm. And she was a very spiritual uh, masseuse, masseuse or body worker. And I remember she was giving me this massage and she could feel the tension in my back and my body. And she says, I breathe, breathe deeply. She's like, what are you feeling? And I said, I, I feel afraid. She's like, I want you to just as I'm working, I just want you to breathe into that fear. Interesting. So I, so I started to breathe into the fear and I just sobbed on the massage table. Like I just wow. cried and cried and cried. And that was the first realization of the power of massage and how mm. once we are given the permission to let go of our stress and let go of all the stuff that we're holding onto in our body, it comes out in emotion. Wow. So in a weird way, I think that was my first experience with healing wounds and and how it manifests in the body. So I did massage for, let me think now, a couple of years because I got bored. (laughs) Uh, As you know, I love to talk and I love to engage in thoughtful conversation. And sometimes massage work, you can, like the client might want to talk or whatever, but most times it's very quiet. And I think it worked for me for a while during the period where I was really in the early stages of grieving and healing. So I started doing massage at Steve Nash Sports Club. At that time, it was a gym that was like high-end celebrities use that in downtown Vancouver. It was before Fitness World came in and ruined it. So I was around a lot of personal trainers there. And I started to have this idea of, hmm, I'm kind of getting bored of massage, but it's a powerful thing in my toolbox. What if I became a personal trainer? Now I can beat the crap out of them and then massage them after. <laughs> that, that was my initial thought. It's, hey, I can train them really hard, beat the crap out of them, and then massage them. Uh, and then what ended up happening was I got my certificate in PT and I didn't even get my first chance personal training for probably almost two years after I got certified. And there's a lot of reasons why. One, was because I was, I think, scared. Mm -hmm. Uh, I wasn't experienced. So that was going to be a problem. You know, sometimes when they say it's our success that we're more afraid of rather than our failure, I think there was a bit of that involved. Mm. I ran away to Costa Rica for a couple for a couple months. I don't know, maybe it was one month, but I ran away to Costa Rica and I knew when I came back, I didn't have a job anymore. And when I came back, I actually went back to retail. I was working at a bookstore and that was probably the lowest of the low for me. That's where I hit these stretches where I was really lost, man. Mm. I Here I am, 30-something years old, 30, good grief, maybe 37 years old, working part full-time at a bookstore that I hated mm. and really tough. And I remember there were moments where... I was really breaking down and I never had thoughts of suicide, but I had those, just those thoughts of just not wanting to be here anymore. Yeah. Like just my life. How did I get here? Right? Like, how did it come to this and slipping into a lot of victim mentality and Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. And then finally one day I just was like, I'm going to quit. I remember telling my dad, I'm going to quit this job. I'm getting the hell out. He's like, oh, you shouldn't quit unless you have something lined up. I'm like, dad, I'll live in a box right now if I have to, but I need to get out of there. Wow. So I just... I just quit and I'd been applying for some personal training stuff. And then a couple days after my last shift, I was working out at the rec center and I got a 
I got a message from a, a local gym in New West to come in for an interview. So went in, did that interview and uh, got the job. And I was finally a personal trainer. And as you know, I've been doing that for about 12 years now. Wow. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so that was the start of that whole, the, the physical side of it. So it's really interesting when I look back and I reflect, you know, in my early years, I was doing this acting, connecting to my emotions a bit. But what was interesting is acting started to fall away for me because all of a sudden, the more I became comfortable myself, the less I felt the need to pretend to be something else. Like mm. it was weird. My acting actually started to f suffer a little bit and struggle. I think that's where it kind of fell apart a little bit with the acting for me as well. I lost a bit of interest. It's just interesting because I did the acting and then my mom passed away and my first introduction to health and wellness was the body. It was uh, how toxic energy stores in the body, how we're where we're tense, why we're tense. Then I went into the physical, you know, almost if you want to go archetypes, it's almost like now I, I started to exercise my warrior a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Before that, I would say it was a little bit more healing. It was lover energy. It was, it was lover. And then it was warrior. Then, as you know, you know, this story, I'm not going to get into this deeply, but I was in a really tough relationship. Yeah. And uh, it ended really bad. And it was mm so challenging that when I came out of that, then I slipped out of the physical part of it. And I started to really search for the spiritual answers and what what is the meaning of life. And mm -hmm. I really dove into meditation. We did the Shakti Kriya together. We did, yeah. And then so all of a sudden, I went into this heavy magician energy. And then as you know, I met a lovely gentleman from the Unmasked Man last year, Alexander, and I coached with him to kind of do the King energy. And mm -hmm. It's kind of interesting. I'm realizing that now as I'm speaking to you, that archetypal journey that I've been on. And I encourage my clients to do that now too, is just think back, which energies were dominant? Which energies were you allowed to express as a child? That's a big one because mm. our parents shut down some of them. Mm -hmm. And it's different for siblings. Like your brother was probably allowed to express this archetype more than you were because it's, he's your brother. And it's, but it's looking back on your life and really looking at these, these, where were your energies at and where was your growth? Yeah. And I certainly spent a large portion of my young years searching for love from a girl, from a woman. Mm -hmm. uh, and it just took me a long time to learn, learn how to love myself. So yeah. And then, yeah, here I am today and I'm doing the, the men's coaching and uh, embarking on that part of the journey. Mm -hmm. But I love how, you know, getting this opportunity to talk about this today, it's really good therapy for me because I'm able to just go, wow, okay, that's why I'm here where I am today. Like it's all the chapters of my story are connected and they're making sense in a weird way. Uh, it's powerful, especially now as I'm entering that phase of life where Robert Moore talks about this a lot, where when a man reaches 50 and goes beyond 50, he goes in two directions. A lot of men tend to go, well, that's it. I've raised my kids. I've done my job. And they just kind of let themselves go. Mm -hmm. Whereas really that's the time where men need to step into that king mm. and they they need to share their knowledge more and you're heading into that elder stage right so right yeah so i think that's kind of my story in a nutshell uh i think the heart of the story for me is is yeah that's pretty much that that's that was my trajectory to to get where i'm i am now wow wow thank you oh i'm gonna sip my coffee yeah Oh, it's a great story. Thank you so much. You know, I was getting some imagery of my favorite show, uh, Avatar The Last Airbender, when you're talking about the massage table and the masseuse, you know, really digging into your fear. There's this 
one scene in season three where Aang got mortally wounded. Aang is the main character, and he actually died for a moment. And uh, his um, his girlfriend, I guess you could say, they weren't official at the time, but she was able to revive him. And she has this like water bending healing <clears throat> powers. And you know, once he finally woke up after you know, the big event, they went for like a, a water healing massage moment and Aang was going through um, amnesia, as I would assume one might go through if they're going through something like really, really traumatic like that. And he didn't really know what happened to him until she finally was able to like massage over the wound. It was almost like his spirit detached from his body for a moment and then got snapped back in. And uh, he just kind of like recoiled from everything. And then he's like, oh my God, I died. <laughs> right so i was just kind of like thinking about that moment too when you're saying that and it's really fascinating anyways we're here to talk about archetypes mm-hmm. and uh my favorite topic your favorite topic and i'm so glad to have you because uh you're definitely an expert on this and yeah you were talking a bit about this during your story but i, I just wanted to uh ask you a bit about you know what is the significance of archetypes and you know why are they so useful and talk to me about your attachment to this type of language and philosophy i think it starts with what i mentioned i've always been obsessed with hero's journey i love movies i love storytelling and they are us we are them. We're in those stories and we connect very deeply. That's why we cry at the end of the movie or we feel something for that character, right? We're, we're connected to myth. We're connected to story. So I've, I've always been obsessed with that. And when I w- was starting to get into the online coaching and I really wanted to start doing men's work and things like that, I was really searching for an angle of what is my coaching about? And I didn't want it to just be a surface level stuff. I was really tired of the self-development stuff that's very much like, oh, I've got the three secrets of how to beat anxiety. And really they're they're not secrets first of all they're well-known tools that i think can help you alleviate certain things but to me those things are band-aids that mm-hmm. you can cover it up right eventually that band-aid is going to start to wear it's going to start to peel and that wound is still going to be there so i think what happened was uh, i met alexander and i was just really pulled into the unmasked man's world of these these archetypes and i'd already been studying careless pearson's work uh awakening the heroes within and i was so i was kind of on that level but she talks about a lot of different archetypes mm. And it can get a little bit, I think, muddled because there's just so many. And what I love most about the King Warrior Magician Lover is that it's only four. And you could say there's more than four archetypes because of the shadows, but it's really cool when you start to work with just the four of them. It's simple, it's more grounded, and I I just found it made so much sense to me. And I encourage a lot of people to do this work because I think it's just a really good language, especially for men who struggle to communicate vulnerably with each other it provides this language that is as you know too it's kind of fun sometimes too it's like oh there's that magician again being all cunning and all that and you know for men that have have shared in the work it just provides this really comfortable umbrella to work under and open up under when you start to think that way and i think it connects our boy to that energy of okay i want to be in my king more i want to be that hero i want to be sitting on my throne and wearing that crown and being in control of my life so yeah I can't as you know I mean I can't say enough about what they've done for me I get lit up when I see social media I watch Alexander and his business partner Mitchell doing their work like it just makes my heart glow and it makes me just want to spread this work 
sometimes my shadow magician will come in and try to get into this a bit later, but sort of plant that seed of doubt of when you're starting something new, who am I to do this? And who am I to, I'm not smart enough. I'm not an expert. Very much shadow magician, right? Yeah, I just think that they really provide a language and a structure that is relatable, fun, and I just think it really creates a, a connection for men, especially. I mean, uh, Robert Moore talks about it. Uh, you can use the same four for women. It's the it's the queen warrior, magician lover, right? So in a sense, all of these shadows apply to women as well. But I just think that it's exactly what men need to properly open up and connect. I think it provides that conduit. It just provides this way of communicating that is, is fun. I love that. I completely agree. Yeah, when I was doing the work with you, I uh, definitely noticed that creating these figures, these, uh, an I, I say anthropomorphic, and for those who don't know what that means, it's essentially like giving human-like qualities to inanimate objects or things that don't normally have human-like qualities. Great example could be like, say, Woody from Toy Story. You know, toys don't live like humans, but Woody does. Mm -hmm. um, so these are like different aspects of yourself that you're anthropomorphizing and creating this character that you can talk about. A quote that comes to mind that I was talking about with my brother in a previous podcast was from Claude Debussy, the famous composer who said that music is in the space between the notes. And I, I really love that quote so much because it really relates to this archetypal language that what we're doing is we're creating space between us and our problems. And we're creating that kind of inner music, that inner chord, you know? Yeah, and, and realizing that we are not our problems. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like in that sense that we shouldn't identify I had a, a coach on a year or so ago on the podcast. She called out the, when we say things like, I am depressed. No, it's you, you are not depressed. Depression is happening to you. Mm. But when you over-identify and claim it as, as your personal, like I am, you run into a lot of trouble. Yeah, no, but you're completely correct. And most psychologists and counselors would say that if someone is using language of like, I am depressed, I am bad, I am a failure, they would determine that you are full of shame, right? Shame is taking on the emotion or experience as a definer of who you are. I am 100% a failure. I am 100% bad. I am 100% depressed. Well, that's not entirely true, right? It's like you're saying, I am the sad cloud in the sky, but really you're the sky who can hold on to multiple different kinds of clouds. And I think that's been the most powerful takeaway for me with the archetypal work is that I've been able to finally separate myself from a lot of the problems that I find have been ruling my life and controlling my life. And I think it's a great way to show myself some love and show it some love, my, my problems some love, and it's been profound. It, it's, it's really lovely, and I, I think everyone should give it a go at least, you know? <laughs> I think when you start to personify these shadows and the archetypes in their fullness too, it's just interesting th things start to happen. Think of it as you're, you're born a king mm -hmm. or you're born a queen. You're born into purity. You're born into this pure consciousness and this, this limitless being with endless and infinite possibilities. But what happens over time is society, teachers, parents, peers almost poison us in a certain way. And they plant the seeds of these different shadows. So imagine this almost like a, a baby being born, but like a seed of a shadow starts. 
Yeah. Okay. And we do all these things to protect that shadow, hide that shadow. But in a way, when you start to envision what would I look like? What would Luke look like? What would Scott physically look like? How would he move and how would he act if that shadow completely consumes him? Mm. And yeah, it gives this kind of connection and also um, disconnect from it when you realize that that part of yourself, although it is a part of yourself, was not intended for use. Like it was it was created over time by toxic things. Again, once you personify that, or as you say, anthrop... Anthropomorphize. Yeah, sorry. Anth- anthropomorphize it. <laughs> uh, I'm usually great with those words. Um, but all of it, I mean, all of that, even even the archetypes in their fullness, when you know, when you do the visualization and, and you envision, like uh, I did one with Rod Boothroyd recently where I just saw my king as slightly older than myself, gray beard, and he was just the version of myself that I want to become, but yet already am. Interesting. And it's it's this weird thing of, and that's why even now when I remind myself to go into King, it's almost as if I step into this fatherly sort of calmer, eagle eye view man. And just that imagery creates a feeling in me. Mm-hmm. And here's the other thing is some people I think might struggle with this work because they might think of themselves as, oh, that sounds kind of more artsy, creative kind of stuff. Like I don't have the imagination for it. And that's where I would challenge them and say, no, that's just it. We were as children all born with a magical and wondrous imagination that got crushed over time. Mm-hmm. We're not encouraged to be that creative, Luke. Like we're not in adult life. So... That's why this work I think is important too, is because it forces people to be imaginative and it forces them to be creative and really see their life as this great epic movie and this, this mythic story. And you have the power by doing this work to start to rewrite some of these toxic myths, Mm. limiting beliefs and things that you've created and, and start to change the trajectory of your story. Fascinating. Yeah, you know, you're reminding me of when I took an acting class with Douglas. (laughs) And uh, I just wanted to try it on and see what it was like. And I kind of realized that I didn't really like being other people, which is very interesting because you liked to be other people. And then as you started to like yourself, your acting started to suffer, which Mm -hmm. is interesting. Maybe I inherently liked myself a lot more than I realized, which is lovely to say. I love saying that out loud. That was that was a nice moment. But yeah, when I was doing the work with you, I, I felt like I had to really step into that acting role again and be someone that I'm not. But the reality is, is that it's not that it's someone that I'm not. It's someone that I was too afraid to face. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a strange feeling when you do that exercise because everything, even for me as a former actor, when I did it with Alexander, everything in my mind, body, and spirit goes, I don't want to do that. That just feels corny. Or it, you start to judge it right away. You're judging magician. I think that's your safety officer comes right into play in that mm-hmm. moment when you get asked to do that kind of work. Yeah. But again, it's that thing where it's like, no, 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 it's there. And I think, as you mentioned, you, you hit the, the nail on the head in the sense that it's just being afraid to actually allow that shadow to, to shine a light on it. Yeah. Or to take over. Right. We, we kind of tend to ignore or pretend that these shadows aren't there mm. by distracting or doing things. So when we're sitting there and we're asked to embody that shadow, it is kind of frightening and it is kind of like, ooh, yeah. Now I can't be in denial anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. So we've been talking a lot about shadows, and I'm sure people listening are like, what the heck are they talking about? 
So I'd like to just uh, ask, how, what is a shadow when it comes to archetypal language? How do we define that? I like Robert Bly's definition of the shadow, that we all have a shadow bag. Mm. And when we're young and we're told, when we're trying to express ourselves and our truth and it gets shut, that can go into shadow. Interesting. Any kind of trauma we experience, you know, whether we are emotionally, physically abused, goes into that shadow bag. Mm. But the interesting part about the shadow and the shadow bag is that it won't necessarily manifest out, out of the bag or come out of the bag the same way it went in. Mm. I wish I could come up with a really good uh, example, but it, it's that thing where, like a good example is when I was a kid, I was terrified of oral presentations. And that part of that is because I think the first time I went up, I got laughed at and teased. So that's going to go into shadow. Mm. But how it comes out of the bag is perfectionism. Oh. Now I'm going to try and be perfect to avoid that thing happening. And that's also safety officer coming in to protect me from that ever occurring again. Yeah. But through that perfectionism, I'm not allowing that expression to be released as full as it needs to. Right. So that's, I think, one example of how shadows form and happen. And that's why some shadows are not all evil and dark and bad. You know, we've had this conversation when, you know, I have a loud voice. And my mom used to always say, shush, you're too loud. Mm. Well, that's going to go into shadow. Yeah. That's now me going to be like, okay, I, I, can't, I have to be quiet. I can't, I can't be too loud. My mom says I'm too loud and that's in shadow. Mm. And in a weird way, I believe the shadow could also come out in another way where maybe later in life, I, I didn't do this, but I, I become even more loud and obnoxious because I want somebody to hear me so bad or whatever, right? So the, the possibilities are endless because the psyche is, is just such a complicated thing. But yeah, I would say, you know, the shadows are, are the expression of the, of our wounds. It's the expression of our trauma that is creating the stories that we tell ourselves, these negative limiting beliefs. Mm, wow. You're not good enough. Well, that's probably because somebody told me that when I was younger. Mm -hmm. So my shadow is now telling me that and saying, mm, yeah, mm -hmm. you're not good enough. Remember, remember that Luke, you're not good enough. Oof. <laughs> yeah. And we adopt those and we believe them. And especially, Luke, especially when, you know, again, you know, our parents try and do the best they can, but it doesn't take much to wound a child emotionally. It's, mm. It really doesn't. And parenting, I've never done it. So I'm not speaking from experience, but I can only imagine. I know I would be, I, I notice that when I babysit, I'm just so careful of how I act and what I say. I slip into king energy because I'm and lover energy a bit. And I'm, of course, raising a kid, you have to have warrior too, right? Yeah. But, and all the archetypal energies, but it's just that I think it comes back to all of this work can be bottled up into one word and that's self-awareness, well, I guess two words, but one concept, but it is, it's, it's being self-aware because our parents were wounded mm. by their parents. Mm -hmm. And, and it comes down to stopping this ancestral line of wounding and it takes work and effort for an individual to go, okay, the buck stops here. Like I'm not going to do the same things that my parents did to me. I'm going to give my kid the chance to grow and to flourish. And I think a lot of times the biggest problem with parenting is that a lot of times parents over magician their kids. They try to control them too much. Like that feeling of they're my property. They're my kid. Mm. Yes, they're your kid. But if you think spiritually, 
then it's like, well, no, that kid deserves to have his own thoughts and his own feelings and his own actions. You shouldn't push what you want to like, allow the child to fulfill his own soul's purpose. Mm, wow. Right. That is the key. I think that we're, we're missing out on. And it doesn't mean don't parent, just let your kid run around loose and, and be a little shit disturber, but it, it's just, I think now, especially in the world, I think we are shielding our children too much. Like it's getting to the point where we live in a world that is so fear-based and we're projecting that fear now under our kids. And I think kids are growing up right now predominantly in fear, in fear of everything. Don't say this, don't express that. Mm. So yeah, it, it's fascinating to me. And I've come to these conclusions through this work and, and my own process and my own healing and realizing that my own family, my own parents who I love and adore for the job they did. And I did learn some valuable things from them. But as with most parents, they were far from perfect. Mm. And there was a lot of projection from my mom and a lot of control and a lot of anger. And it really affected me growing up. And then we spend our adult lives trying to reverse that. <laughs> if we're if we're smart, that's what we try to do. Yeah. And I've said this before, if everybody does this work or some type of work like this, it doesn't have to be archetypal. That's going to change the world. Yeah. Wow. That's going to, from the top leaders all the way down to, to the bottom rung, if everybody did this kind of work, wars would end, famines would probably end too, because you would get these billionaires like the Elon Musk of the world, or like, what is it, Jeff Bezos, he buys a dick-shaped rocket so he can go to the moon. Like, I mean, there's a, there's a whole conversation there about masculinity and what's going on in his mind. Like, he has to build a rocket, and it literally looks like a dick. I mean, it's like, come on, dude. <laughs> Ooh, but he, but yep. the thing is, but these guys, I'm not saying don't do that at all and fulfill and use your money to fulfill your own dreams and ambitions. But think about if all the billionaires right now or rich people in the world came together in a room and said, let's end famine right now. That would be cool. I wonder what would happen. Yeah. Well, but the reason it's not happening, though, is because there's all these selfish desires and all these, you know what I'm saying? It's like I've always said, if I won the lottery. Mm-hmm. I would donate a huge portion of it right away because I'd be like, that wasn't really, I mean, I want it, but it's not really my money. Like I'm going to give back. I have to give back and money is energy. So if you're, if you're, if you're filthy rich and even if you've worked hard for your money, I really believe that it's just, it's your duty to share it with those that need it. That's why you've been gifted that money. Like just spread the love. Right. So I love that. I don't know how I got on that tangent. <laughs> I don't know how. Just... That was lovely. No, thank you so much. Yeah, it's the second cup of coffee. <laughs> hey, oh, I get it. Um, no, I was uh, as you're going off. I was really thinking about. Don't pin me on the uh, the title of what this is. I think it might be um, security attachment theory. Someone explained this to me, but when we're young and we experience something and uh, our emotions react to it outside forces then tell us the way you're reacting is too much or it's too little what we tend to do is we tend to stretch or shrink the emotional uh experience that we feel so that the outside force around us can validate that we are uh reacting and acting appropriately so i know the example you brought up of like you're being too loud right so you're you're experiencing this emotion, you're, you're very loud and exuberant about it. And then your mom tells you to like, shut up. And so then you shrink, 
right? And then you eventually shrink and shrink and uh, you keep going and doing it over and over again until eventually you shrink to the appropriate amount that finally now your reaction is appropriate for mm -hmm. the people that you're around, right? And I think that's mm -hmm. also ties into people's sense of belonging. We want to belong to other people. We want to belong to our family. And oftentimes when we want to belong, and the other people around us don't really understand that belonging is just showing up and that being enough, that they, they criticize and they critique uh, all these behaviors in you so that you can fit in better. I always believe, and I talk about this in another podcast, that the opposite of belonging is fitting in. And this is a Brene Brown work as well. But yeah, fitting in is like severing and cutting off parts of yourself so you can better belong with the group. And uh, I believe this insecurity that we feel when we're told that we're being inappropriate is how you're defining shadows, right? Mm -hmm. Did you ever hear the Jim Carrey quote about how about depression and the reason people are depressed is because they're exhausted playing a character they weren't supposed to play. Like they're, 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 you're not basically depression is a result of you not being the person you're supposed to be. And when that, that lands with me in every, I'm like, Jim Carrey, man, people think he went all weird. I'm like, no, no, that guy woke up. Yeah. <laughs> like he woke up, man. He is spouting some truths. And I'm like, that one though was so, and part of that comes from him over the years. He talks about, he's like, I was being Jim Carrey. Mm. Like I was being Jim Carrey for everybody in this whole thing. And it makes sense. Like we, you know, these shadows, these wounds, what we've just touched on, this idea of things that get stifled and suppressed, all of that is what's causing this depression. It's causing this feeling of you're exhausted playing all, never mind one character. I think you take it a step further. You're, you're playing a character for this person. And then when you're at work, you're slipping into this hat. Yeah. I think most people are altering themselves slightly when they go from person to person changing their opinion slightly not to ruffle that feather uh whatever it is and they're they're censoring themselves you know and that's very magician -y energy yeah very much and safety officer energy when really we all need to just start expressing ourselves you know truthfully and fully and and i try to be uh, I still catch myself doing it sometimes with certain personal training clients, different male energy. I feel these shifts happening sometimes where I, it's almost like their energy pulls you into their energy if you're not careful and, and it can pull you off of being who you're supposed to be, right? And that's, it's this weird kind of thing that can happen. And I find I have to be like, keep being you, Scott. Don't like stay in your energy, stay in your truth. Try to be the same person with every person you're with. I mean, obviously you're not going to be exactly the same with your, your intimate partner, with your buddy, let's say, but you know what I mean? It's, it's that grounded King energy of, I know who I am. Mm -hmm. I know what I stand for. Mm -hmm. uh, I know how to create healthy boundaries. I know when to let people in. I know how to not overreact. I know how to let things land before I speak. I know how to listen. Like it's all those skills truthfully that makes, makes all the difference in the world. Wow. guys there we go there's part one there I'm really sorry to me that felt like i left you guys on a cliffhanger when i was listening to this again so if i am i'm really sorry in the next episode however next week we are going to be talking a little bit more about what is a safety officer and the relationship between the shadow bag and the safety officer 
Also next week uh, in that episode, we're going to be talking about the shadows of the magician. So I do hope you tune in and uh, yeah, we're going to finish this conversation. It'll be okay. But yeah, Brambling, I I wonder what your magician is kind of like. I wonder if you've ever thought about your magician. Does he wear a cloak? Does he does he just look like you but has magical powers? I don't know. I don't know. But for me, my magician wears a cloak and he's got white hair and he holds a uh, a staff. The staff that was in Onward, the Pixar movie, that one. Yeah, he holds that one. And uh, yeah, he's a cool guy. He's a cool guy. He thinks a lot, though. But <laughs> that's the magician. Just uh, I want you to know that I love you and that also means that I love your magician and uh yeah the dear brambling podcast is a podcast dedicated to my little nephew to the next generation of humans growing up in this world as well as to those who might be looking for a little more guidance in their life it is hosted by me, Luke Benoit. The editing and sound design are provided by MB Productions as well as Hideout Productions. The music that you're listening to is called Sunlight Cascading Through the Clouds by Artificial Music. If you'd like to follow me on any social media, I am on Instagram and Twitch at Rex. And for those who are still listening this far into the podcast, I'd like to take a moment to really thank you from the bottom of my heart. I'd also like to say that if you are experiencing any difficulties or pain in your life right now, there is still no substitute for a trained coach, counselor, or licensed therapist. If you are committed to putting in the work and really trying to better yourself as a human, I definitely recommend that you go searching and shopping for the right coach, counselor, or therapist for you. 